Hard Feelings by Mark Coggins is a bang bang thrill ride, says best-selling author Seth Harwood, who adds that the lead character of Winnie is a female Jack Reacher. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 26 Reardon Ray unwrapped his third Little Debbie pudding roll and dispatched it in one bite. It was a little after seven in the evening, and we were parked on a twisty section of Highway 29 in his Dodge Aries, just a few miles north of Calistoga. We'd gone there to wait for sunset and the closing of Robert Louis Stevenson's State Park, home to Mount St. Helena, the tallest peak between the Napa and Alexander Valleys. Really? I said. How many LDBPRs are you going to eat? Mmm, said Ray, his mouth still full of rubbery sponge cake and Airzat's banana cream. A person of your advanced years should pay more attention to your diet. Ray threw the wrapper over his shoulder where it fluttered onto the back seat. You're one to talk. Yeah, but Ray, banana? Little Debbie makes a fine line of snack cakes. Stick to her chocolate devil squares or her cosmic brownies. There's no need to get involved with banana. Ray waved me off, wagging his chin at a white pickup coming around the corner. The park ranger, that's our cue. Have I mentioned this is crazy? You're one to talk, he repeated and drove off. A hiker going to the top of Mount St. Helena, I knew from Ray, would start at a trailhead near the park entrance. He would pick his way a mile or so through the pine forest ringing the mountain until he came to a dirt fire road. He would then turn left onto the road and follow it another four miles until he reached the summit and a thicket of communication towers. Ray had a different idea. We crossed the park entrance, which wasn't much more than a wide spot in the highway, and continued to a gate made of galvanized pipe guarding the fire road. I jumped out with a set of bolt cutters and, after a bit of fumbling, managed to dispatch the padlock securing it. Ray rattled through, funky, home-built trailer and all. I shoved the squeaky gate closed, snapping on a new padlock once I latched the gate in place. We didn't expect anyone to come tootling along at this time of night, but if they did, we hoped they'd assume they brought the wrong key. I piled back into the Aries, and we began the ascent up the mountain. The road was steep and rutted with switchbacks every few hundred yards. Ray drove without lights and steered a wavering course that hewed a little too close to the edge for my taste. I brought my hand up twice to make what seemed like a needed course correction, and twice I restrained myself out of respect for Ray. He kept the car on the track nonetheless. The third time, I didn't have a choice. 
We nearly drove right off the edge. I squawked and yanked the wheel over. Then I pulled on the headlights. I think we can risk a little illumination, I said. You know, to help keep you on the straight and narrow. Sure, he sniffed. We made the rest of the ascent without incident, passing not one but two blocky white buildings with attendant communication towers before we reached the summit and the biggest tower of all. Beside it was another blocky white building, and beside the building was a football field's worth of smooth black asphalt, presumably for parking service vehicles. There weren't any service vehicles now, though, so Ray bumped off the rutted fire road to the blacktop, pulling the Aries to the rear of the pad. We got out of the car and walked forward to the overlook. There, stretched below us, was the Alexander Valley, dark except for the winking lights of Healdsburg, the odd blip from a farmhouse or winery building, and the slow stream of headlights from cars trolling along Highway 128. And, just in front of the highway, less than 10 miles southwest as the crow flies, was the cluster of lights that marked Marionette Vineyards. Nice view, I said. Yes, it is, said Ray. Why don't you stay here and enjoy it while I get set up? You don't need any help? No, it's all stuff I don't trust anyone else to do. Thanks, Ray. You know what I mean. I nodded and watched him trudge off towards the car. A minute later, the headlights snapped on, and he pulled open the trailer door and began rummaging inside. I returned to the overlook. On the drive from Reno, after we had figured out the winemaker's location, I had made a crack to Winnie about targeting him with a drone strike. Ray's idea wasn't a drone strike exactly. It was more of a drone reconnaissance. He planned to do a flyover of Marionette with one of his model airplanes. He had pitched the idea that afternoon at a meeting in our motel room. But Ray, I had said, we already did a reconnaissance. You call getting chased away from the property by machine guns doing a reconnaissance? You haven't seen a tenth of the place, and you have no idea what other defenses they have, and, more to the point, what vulnerabilities there may be. The only practical way to get that is by air. Then let's use the satellite function of Google Maps. We won't even have to leave our room. I already looked. The satellite photos on Google Maps were taken two years ago, before the winemaker bought the property. They won't show any of the changes he's made. Oh. I looked over at Winnie. She was sprawled on the couch, working on her hand exercises with an improbable level of concentration. There was no help coming from her. How about a real plane, then, I said. Why don't we rent a plane and fly over? Ray shook his head. Why don't you drive up to the front gate in your rental car? Because they'll get the plate number and track you down. They'll do the same with the end number on the tail of the plane. The whole point of a drone is it's safe and untraceable. I think this is just an excuse to play with your models. You must have installed the cameras in Palm Springs right after we invited you. 
You planned this from the beginning. That got him going. You asked me to come here to help, he said, punctuating his words with a stab of his index finger. This is how I'm helping. I asked you here to reverse engineer the instrument packs on the guards. We risked life and limb to get one. Seems like you should take a little time to look at it. I will, once we have the full picture of their defenses. I glanced over at Winnie again. She stood, tossing her hand exerciser onto the couch. I'm going to the gym. Let me know when you boys determine the grand strategy. I battled on for another few minutes, but this wasn't an argument I was going to win. I remained convinced that the exercise was a complete waste of time, but I conceded it was at least a relatively safe and anonymous one. A sputtering metallic cough brought me back to the here and now. Then a piercing whine I recognized as a model airplane engine. I turned to find Ray lining up his prized Fokker triplane in the light thrown from the Ares headlights. The plane was painted bright crimson, like Red Baron Manfred von Richthofen's fighter from World War I. Trimmed with black iron cross decals on the tail and fuselage, it had a wingspan of more than six feet, and it had won awards for best custom-built model at many radio control conventions. I was surprised Ray had picked this of all of his planes to use. I jogged over to where he stood by the door of the car. He held a remote control with a long antenna and was busy testing the elevator, ailerons, and rudder of the triplane. Lying on the hood beside him was a tablet computer that seemed to be receiving a video feed from the craft. Why the Red Baron? I shouted at him over the whine of the motor. It needs the shortest amount of space to take off and land. Ray had at least relied on Google satellite maps for one thing, finding the best launch point for the reconnaissance. Mount St. Helena was perfectly positioned, but he didn't trust the scale of the satellite photos and was concerned about the condition of the blacktop. As it turned out, the pad seemed plenty big enough, and was relatively smooth and unweathered, too. All right, said Ray. We're ready to go. Hold the tablet, will you? I'll need that to navigate once we get off the mountain. I picked up the tablet and held it up like a book for him to read. The bulk of the screen had the video feed from the plane, but there was also a small box in the upper right corner showing a map of the area. The map had a flashing red dot at the summit of the mountain. The geolocation of the plane, I assumed. Ray pushed the slider that controlled the throttle, and the motor screamed. The aircraft shot forward, and then Ray pulled the elevator back, and it jerked into the air like a hooked trout. It seemed the triplane needed very little runway at that. The plane sailed over the edge of the mountain, Ray executing a full barrel roll as it disappeared from view. Just the video feed of the maneuver was enough to make me nauseous. Show off, I said. That's so you don't start doubting my piloting skills. Only on the ground, Ray. Only on the ground. The volume and pitch of the motor decreased as the plane flew away from us, and soon I could hear nothing at all. 
The flashing red dot on the map steered a true enough course west by southwest, but the video seemed very jerky, as if the plane was being buffeted or shaken. I pointed at the screen of the tablet. What's going on? That's normal. There are thermals rising from the mountain and the foothills, and a triplane is particularly sensitive to those. It'll smooth out once we're further into the valley. As Ray predicted, the motion gradually dampened. Five minutes after takeoff, if you told me I was watching footage from a Goodyear blimp, I would have believed you. I'm steering clear of the winery on the way out, said Ray a few minutes later. We'll turn at Highway 128, drop down to about 300 feet, and then come right up their gullet. That way, we'll get good video from the entrance to the eastern property line. We can make multiple passes if we see anything interesting. The highway came into view just a minute later. Ray banked the plane to fly on a line above it, dropping from what must have been several thousand feet until I could clearly identify the models of the cars below us and even make out the arms of the farmers resting their elbows in the open windows of their pickups. The dual driveways leading into the Marriott property appeared, and Ray banked right to fly over the vineyard between them. We crossed a section of road that connected the drives in a U, and then flew over the office and the old tasting room of the winery. In the halos of floodlights, I picked out the aluminum shed and the entrance to the wine caves I'd seen when Winnie and I had sneaked onto the adjacent vineyard. The fence and the guards patrolling the perimeter were visible too, marching lockstep with more than military precision. From the air, they were like mechanical people in a gigantic clockworks. Ray reached over to tap a control on the tablet computer, and the display flashed into night vision mode. More details became visible, including oak barrels stacked in shadows beneath a tree, and even a dog barking at the plane. The dog was not the only thing to take note of the plane. As Ray circled to make another pass at the office and outbuildings, the guards closest to it stopped marching. They made no obvious move to threaten or even observe the aircraft, but I couldn't help feeling they were capturing and relaying information about it to the winemaker's men. I pointed out their attitude to Ray. Maybe it's time to cut and run, I said. You've already gotten more than I ever expected. That's because you expected so little. We'll make another pass here, and then I want to cover the full perimeter of the property. There's got to be a chink in their armor. Ray swung over the highway once more, and then lined up for another run past the twin drives. That was when the chink was found, and, unfortunately, it belonged to us. As we came over the office buildings once more, the door to the wine cave swung open and outcharged a group of four men, all of them wearing night vision goggles and all of them armed with rifles or shotguns. Ray, I warned, but he had already seen them. He shoved the stick over, goosing the throttle and pulling back on the elevator to climb as we turned. The view on the screen shifted from the ground to the foothills and then further east to the mountain on which we were standing. We never saw what hit us. One moment the sky was clear. The next there were bits of wood and fabric obscuring it. And then the picture went dark.
The plane had been shot down like an overgrown mallard. Ray made a noise like he'd been kicked in the stomach. I looked over to find him slack-jawed, moisture already welling at the corners of both eyes. In the eerie light projected from the tablet computer, I saw a tear detach itself and run down his cheek. Ray, I'm sorry, man. I know that plane was important to you. I realized the loss of the plane was the first time he truly understood the stakes of the game. Yes, he had expressed shock about the downing of the helicopter. And yes, watching Winnie dispatch the fake PG&E lineman had disturbed him. But this, this was personal. Building model airplanes was what kept him going after he retired and his wife left him. And this particular plane was the one he prized most, the one he had invested with the most sense of self. Given all that, it's not surprising what he did next. He shoved the controller over to me and marched around to the far side of the trailer. He yanked open the door, and I heard a rattling of contents. Piece by piece, he extracted the parts of a plane I had never seen before. It was huge for a model, and made of metal, and it did not have a propeller. I walked around the car to get a better look. I recognized it as a military plane. I was vaguely aware that it was not entirely modern, that it looked like something that might have been flown by the U.S. during the Vietnam War. Knowing Ray's association with McDonnell Douglas and the F-4 Phantom II, I had an obvious guess. Is that what I think it is? He ignored me and reached back into the trailer to haul out a heavy tank on wheels. He wheeled it over to the plane, attached a hose to the side, and began working a pump to transfer whatever was inside the tank to the plane. An oily, varnish-like smell wafted over me. It's not an actual jet, is it? I mean, you can't make a model airplane with a jet engine, can you? Still ignoring me, he took hold of a metal bar attached to the nose of the plane and pulled it around to the front of the Ares where he had parked the Fokker triplane. He detached the rod and tossed it to one side. Give me that, he said, pulling the radio controller back from my hand. He turned a dial on the controller to select a new frequency and put the control surfaces on the plane, elevator, rudder, and ailerons, through their paces like he had with the triplane. Then he took hold of my shirt sleeve and hauled me about ten feet to the side. You might want to put your fingers in your ears, he said. There was no way to do that without putting the tablet computer down, but he wasn't giving me time for that. With a look on his face that was as grim as I'd ever seen, he pressed and held a red button on the side of the controller. At first, I thought the buildup had been for nothing. All I heard was a faint, whirring noise. Then something else caught inside the plane, something larger, louder, and more primeval. A screaming, snarling whine rent the night air, rising in pitch as the motor gained speed. Exhaust washed over the Aries, melting and then charring the paint on the bumper. Ray pressed the throttle slider forward, and the jet roared down the blacktop, seeming to separate wheels from ground just as the plane gobbled up the last bit of runway. The jet held a flat trajectory out over the summit 
and then sagged from view. My stomach dropped, and I felt certain Ray had lost another airplane. A loud bang seemed to confirm the impression, but an instant later, the plane rocketed back into view, and I understood the bang hadn't signaled the plane's destruction, but rather the tapping of some other source of power. The jet disappeared into the night, the tiny glint from its aluminum fuselage quickly lost among the lights of Healdsburg. I glanced at the tablet computer. The terrain in the video was streaming by like a fast-forward version of the picture from the Fokker. Christ, Ray, I said. What the hell is that? An F-4 Phantom II, of course. This was a literal interpretation of my query, but it didn't really get at the questions I had. How many minutes of fuel do we have? I tried instead. Ten minutes. But it'll take that long just to fly there. No, we'll be there in one. Ray pointed at the video feed. In fact, we're already there. Highway 128 glowered below. Ray dropped into a power bank towards the winery so steep and fast that my stomach did the dipsy doodle again as I watched. He was on the property and over the main buildings in an instant. Clustered around the wreckage of the triplane like a pack of dogs worrying a fallen prey were the men who had shot it down. Ray flew straight toward them. Two dove flat on the ground. Another pair veered off in opposite directions. Ray chased a shorter, fatter man with a shotgun until he tripped and did a faceplant. Bastards! He snarled. He pulled out of the dive and began a wide, looping turn, apparently intending to make another pass. You got your revenge, I said, mustering the calmest tone I had. Let's finish the job we came to do. One more pass! Ray, does your ten minutes of fuel include the sort of aerobatics you're doing now? Or are you already eating into your reserve? Come on, bring this one home safe. He took a deep breath and let it out slowly. All right. Holding the rudder over, he transitioned into a corkscrew climb that left him several hundred feet higher, heading east by northeast, directly on a line back to our mountain. He feathered the throttle back, giving us a few extra seconds to observe the remainder of the property. More vineyards passed below us, then the ground rose to broken foothills. A moment later, we passed the fence delineating the back of the property. Guards patrolled it, too, and it looked every bit as formidable as the other sections. Now that we'd seen everything, I decided I'd been right about the whole enterprise. We hadn't learned a single new thing, with the possible exception that the instrument pack carried by the guards was capable of detecting aerial as well as terrestrial threats. I was fighting the urge to crow, I told you so, when I saw something on the screen that put the lie to my whole train of thought. Well past the marionette fence, in a notch in the hills near a dirt road built to service high-tension power lines, loomed a large steel door sheathed in concrete. The back door to the wine caves, said Ray, or I'm Baron von Richthofen. Thank you.
have been listening to No Hard Feelings, a finalist for the Forward Reviews Book of the Year Award. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Thank you.